0: One of the challenges that we face as parents is teaching our kids not to give up, to persevere, to, to teach them some stick to And so uh, you've probably experienced this as a parent or, or else you uh, have, have seen or had family members who have experienced it, but a kid wants to sign up for a particular sport, baseball, football, softball, whatever, and they get into it and it's not what they expected. Maybe they're not getting to play as much as they had imagined or uh, other kinds of issues. And, and so the kid says, hey, I just, I just want to quit. Well, There's been a many of the, a dad or mom who have said to their son or daughter, hey, you, you started this. You need to see it through. You need, to, you need to finish. You need to finish it. Make it through the rest of this season, and, and we'll see. We'll talk about it next year, see what you want to do. But, but, but stick it out. And and again, parents do that sort of thing because they're trying to teach their kids to persevere. Sometimes, lessons like that, we need to speak to ourselves. That is to say, sometimes we need to remind ourselves to persevere, not to give up, not to throw in the towel, if you will, on life. You know, when, when life comes at us and challenging times come, Often our, our hearts just get weary. And in a sense, though we wouldn't say it maybe this clearly, but in a sense we do throw in the towel. We do say, I give up, whatever. And this morning we're going to think about these issues. Is that you? Have, have you said about life, I'm, man, I'm, I'm just tired, I'm weary, I, I give up. Well, we'll think more about this again in Ruth 4. Now, in chapter 1 of Ruth, we were introduced to Elimelech and his wife, Naomi. Now, Elimelech and Naomi lived in Bethlehem. A famine had come in Bethlehem, and because of the famine, these two moved to a foreign country, the country of Moab. They took their two boys with them. When they got to the country of Moab, Elimelech died. Now, Elimelech, his name, this is interesting, the, the narrator of Ruth wants us to be pondering this question, but Elimelech's name means, the Lord is king. So here we have a picture of a man whose name means, the Lord is king, leaving Bethlehem because of famine. We don't have any food, the Lord is king, Right? And so he goes to Moab with his wife and his kids, and there he dies. And he leaves his wife as a widow with two boys. His name means the Lord is king. Now she's in a foreign land with no husband. The Lord is king. You see, these are the issues that we wrestle with all throughout the book of Ruth. Is the Lord really king? Is he really ruling? Is this what happens when the Lord is ruling? And then we consider Naomi's name. His wife, Naomi, her name meant pleasant or lovely. But when she returned from Moab after the death of her husband, but not just the death of her husband, after both of her boys died, both of them, both of her boys married Moabite women in Moab. They were married for around 10 years and neither of them had any children, so they were childless. So now... Naomi finds herself in a foreign country with no husband, with both boys dead, and with no grandchildren after 10 years of marriage. Well, times get better in Bethlehem, and so she decides after the death of her sons that it's time to go back to Bethlehem. She begins to make her journey back, as we've talked about in these last few weeks, and along the way, she urges her daughters-in-law to, to go back to Moab and to make their own life, to find a husband and to rest secure. But one of her, daughter, one of her daughters-in-law, Ruth, says to her, No, Naomi, where you go, I'm going. Your people are going to be my people. Your God will be my God. And so Ruth returned to Bethlehem with Naomi, her mother-in-law. So Ruth has left everything to return to a foreign land. When Naomi gets back, the women of the town say, hey, Naomi's back. She was gone for years and years and years and she's back. But Naomi says to the ladies, do not call me Naomi. Don't call me lovely or pleasant. You call me Mara, which means bitter. Call me bitter. She said, when I left this city years ago, my hands were full, I was blessed, had a husband, had two great sons. But I return here empty-handed. The Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. And so Elimelech's name causes, causes us to ask, Is the Lord really king? But Naomi's name causes us to ask the question: Is God really good? Is he good? And in chapter 4, we're going to see these questions answered. We're going to see the answer of whether or not God is king and whether or not he is good. Now, last week in Ruth chapter 3, we left the story uh, with Ruth approaching Boaz for marriage. Now, what we see when these two got back to Bethlehem Uh, Ruth began to go and glean in the fields, which was gathering up after the harvesters had already harvested. It was something like gathering up aluminum cans. She was trying to make a living for her mother-in-law and for herself by by gleaning. And so she's gleaning in these different fields. This was something permitted in Old Testament Israel. It was required by law, in fact, of of landowners, that they would permit people in need to glean. And so she's gleaning, and she happened upon the field of Boaz, we see in chapter 2 of the book of Ruth. And then Boaz happens to come out and visit his workers at his field at just the time that Ruth happened to land in his area to glean. Now, we know as we've read this story that it didn't just happen to happen, but that God was behind the scenes working things out to bring Ruth and Boaz together. Here's the deal. Boaz was kin To Elimelech. And in Old Testament times, one of the ways that a family was taken care of was by something called a family redeemer. And a family redeemer had responsibility to try to help other family members or a family that was in trouble. For example, if land... If a person had land that, that belonged to a certain family, a family redeemer might might buy it and bring it back into the family if it had had to have been sold because of poverty to try to to try to keep the land within the family. Or a family redeemer might help to purchase one out of slavery who had gone into slavery because of poverty. And then, in a related way, uh, a leveret marriage was a way to carry on a, the family line. Uh, uh, a relative would marry a widow with the the hope of carrying on the family line. And so all of that is coming into play as Ruth meets Boaz. Boaz was a relative of Naomi's deceased husband, Elimelech, and he was a redeemer for their family. So Boaz just happens to be out gleaning, and she meets Boaz. Or Ruth happens to be out gleaning, she meets Boaz. Well, when she goes home to tell her mother-in-law, Naomi, hey, I happened in this field of Boaz, Naomi's eyes, they, 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 they open wide. Boaz, he's, he's a redeemer of our family. And so, as it turns out, eventually, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, I want you to go to Boaz and say to him, will you redeem us? And basically, will you marry me? And in chapter 3, Ruth did just that. And, and it's a beautiful love story. Here we see that Boaz is drawn to this woman. She's drawn to him. We, we want to believe that God's hand is at work. But when we left off, Boaz had told Ruth, I will redeem you. I will marry you. I'll take care of your family. But there's one redeemer who's nearer than I. In other words, there's a redeemer, uh, someone who's closer kin to a than I am, and he actually has the first right or responsibility to redeem you. So if he'll take you, then we can't marry. And that is where we left off in chapter 3. Let's pick up. In Ruth chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Well, here Boaz the night before, Ruth had basically said to Boaz, Marry me. The next morning, he's at the city gate. This is something he intends to take care of. And the city gate, there was a wall around the city, and the city gate's where people came in and out of the city, but it was a lot like a town square. There, was mer- there were merchants and buying and selling, but it was also where city hall was or the courthouse was. It was, in a sense, where business was uh, transacted and where the business of the city occurred. So, so he comes to the city gate hoping to, to, to get a quorum uh, of, of elders who can make a decision and, and who can, in which he can carry out this legal transaction of becoming the redeemer of Naomi and Ruth. And we see in verse 1, behold, the near redeemer happened to show up. Now, again, we, we know that the narrator here wants us to recognize that it wasn't an accident that the redeemer that he needed to talk to Showed up. We know that God was at work there. He brought him right there in the morning, early. The hand of God at work, bringing about his plans in the midst of difficult times. And so, the Redeemer comes and and Boaz says to him, hey, friend, come here. Now, your translation may something may say something besides friend. It may not really have a name. It may just say, come here and sit here. And the reason is this, because in the Hebrew, it's a generic term. It means, hey, no name, or hey, Mr. So-and-so. So basically, we see here that this near redeemer, all throughout this story, is never given a name. And there's a reason for that. We'll come back to it. And so he says, hey, sit here. And then he called on 10 elders of the city, the, the men who could would have the ability to, to make decisions or to ratify a business transaction or other kinds of legal transactions. In a sense, you might say he called a quorum. And let's pick up in verse 3. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there's no one besides you to redeem it. And I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. It's not what we were hoping for, was it? We were imagining after chapter three that Boaz and Ruth were going to be married and it was going to be they lived happily ever after. But suddenly, here, the near Redeemer says, Sure, I'm in. Now, why would he want to do this? Well, it makes all the sense in the world. Naomi had a parcel of land that had belonged to her husband Elimelech, and there were no sons who would later, or daughters who would later receive that land. So basically, if he purchased this land now, it would stay in his family. It would remain in his family, and he could make money off of it, etc. So it made all the sense in the world in terms of a financial decision to buy the land. And he says, you bet, it's mine. But then in verse 5, Boaz has a little more to say. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also will acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, "Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And so here we see in verse 3, or verse 5, uh, Boaz informs the other redeemer if you want the land you get the lady. And what that meant was this, you would have the responsibility of a levirate marriage so that you would marry her and her offspring would become a descendant for Elimelech and Elimelech's family name would carry on and the land would remain in his family. And so the other redeemer says, "No way. This could mess up my inheritance or my legacy." And what's interesting, perhaps the reason he's called Mr. No-Name in verse 1 or Mr. So-and-so is because he missed the opportunity to have the greatest legacy of all. And we'll see more about that in just a moment. So he says, I can't redeem it. Take it for yourself, Now, those of us who have been following the story all along, we kind of sigh a breath of relief. Oh, Boaz and Ruth, they are going to come together. Oh, God is at work. We see his hand. This is awesome. Verse 7, we get a a comment from the author, from the narrator. This tells us that this story was written down sometime after it occurred because, because the author expected that his current audience might not have familiarity with with this custom. But in essence, uh, one of the ways that this can be understood is that when a person purchased land, one of the ways to say this land belongs to me was to tread upon it or to walk upon it. In a sense, to put your foot upon it. And to remove your foot symbolically was to say the land no longer belongs to me. And so this symbolized that kind of an idea. When he took his sandal off, it was as if he was saying, this no longer belongs to me, it's yours. And so the, the near redeemer takes his sandal off and hands it to Boaz in front of all of the people and in front of the, the, the town elders, and he says, the land, the lady, they're yours. You can redeem them. And then Boaz speaks up in verse 10 and says... Um, or or let's pick up there in verse nine. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi and all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people... Who were at the gate, and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So in verses 9 and 10, we see that Boaz says to the elders, to the city. You see all that I'm doing. He wants it to be clear. He doesn't want any dispute later on, anyone coming back and saying, wait a minute, what happened? He wants it to be very clear what's happening. He is going to be the redeemer for Ruth and Naomi and all that they own. And then the people, the elders and the people that are gathered on, they rise and they they remark with this blessing. They are excited about what's happening because why we saw earlier in the book that Boaz was a worthy man. We saw earlier in the book that Ruth was a worthy woman. And they're excited that these two are coming together. And they say, may the woman that's coming into your home be like Rachel and Leah. Well, who were they? They were the matriarchs of the nation. These ladies, in a sense, brought about the 12 tribes of Israel. Leah was the mother of Judah, of whom Elimelech was a member of the tribe of Judah. And obviously Boaz is as well. May may your wife be like them. May may she be a matriarch in Israel. May God use her greatly. Now, if you remember the story of Rachel and Leah, at various times, both of them struggled with barrenness. Something that Ruth knew all too well. And so they're saying to her, to, to Boaz, may she be able to bear children. May she may she be able to have kids and and be blessed. And and may you be like the house of Perez. Now, Perez was the son of Judah and Tamar. And again, this was another situation in which Leveret marriage was in play. It went all awry in Genesis 38. But what we see is that even from this relationship would, would come Perez. And Perez was the strongest clan in the tribe of Judah. So this is Basically, the people saying, may God bless your family and may great things happen through what is ahead. May great things happen through what is ahead and, and what's going on. Now, so far, Boaz and Ruth are going to come together. The legal transaction is official. He Has the woman, if you will. She belongs to him in that sense. Now, Ruth was barren, as I mentioned earlier, for 10 long years before the death of her first husband. Will she have a child now? Let's pick up in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. So here we see Boaz and Ruth marry. And... They conceive, Ruth conceives. Remember there was 10 years of childlessness. We don't know the reasons why. But here we see the Lord take center stage. The only other place where the, the author says the Lord caused this to happen, directly caused it, is in chapter one where it talked about the Lord causing Bethlehem to have plenty again. But here the Lord takes center stage and he opens the womb of a woman who's been barren. The Lord brought conception. He brought conception. And then we fast forward nine months and here's a little baby, a little baby boy. Oh, what an incredible time. What joy, what blessedness. And the women of Bethlehem, remember the same women that Naomi had said, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Those women are saying to her, blessed be God. And so these women give us Basically, the evaluation of who God is is, and of his character and also that of Ruth. And what do these tell us? They tell us that God is faithful. That God is faithful. He, He indeed, he is king. He's brought this about. Naomi, he has provided a redeemer for you. And who's the redeemer? This little baby boy. This little baby boy, he's the redeemer. So God he 's king he 's on the throne he 's bringing all of this about not just that he 's good he 's good he 's taken care of you naomi he 's given you this little baby to take care of you, but not just that he 's given you ruth, and you know what she 's better than seven sons now seven was a number in in the Old Testament or throughout scripture that kind of indicated perfection, so this is the perfect number of sons she 's better than all of those boys. Look at how God has been kind to you. Naomi, look at his provision, his goodness, and his kindness in your life. Do you see it? And so, let's pick up in verse 16. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So imagine the first time Naomi takes this little boy, this baby boy, she holds him. She's looking into his eyes. He's looking back at her. She's looking at his little fingers and toes. He's making little baby grunts. Imagine the joy God had taken care of her. God had brought her a redeemer. And what would, what would this boy do? Well, the scriptures say that he would revive her soul. In other words, he would give her new joy and new hope and new life. And not just that, this boy would take care of her in her old age. She would not be left alone. She would not be destitute. This little boy would take care of her. Now, I want you to see something about Naomi. She does not get the answer to these questions she does not get the answer to why Elimelech had to die young we don't know she does not get the answer to why her boy Malon died we don't know she does not get the answer to the question of why her boy Killian died we don't know she does not get the answer to why both of her boys could be married 10 years and neither have a child we don't know So what we see in Ruth is a tension. And the tension is this. We don't get all the answers. God never in Scripture promises us that he will give us all the answers. But what we do see is that if we'll draw close to him and trust him, he'll take care of us. That he'll be with us. That he'll walk with us. That he won't abandon us. So we can't connect all the dots. We can't answer all the questions. All the pieces of the puzzle aren't there from our perspective. Our understanding is limited. But what we can know is that if, that if we're God's child, He will not leave us alone. He will not abandon us. And He did not abandon Naomi. No, she held a little baby boy There was proof of God's love. But it gets better This little boy that she held? Oh, it gets better. Do you see? The women of the town named him. Now, they probably didn't actually name him. They probably said to his parents, wouldn't Obed be a great name? And you know, everybody likes the name Obed, right? And so they said, sure, that'd be great. So they named this little fella Obed. And then we get a little genealogical information here. He was the father of Jesse. Father of David. Anybody know those guys? Oh, those are really important guys in the the storyline of Scripture. Remember, this story was occurring in the time of the judges, and that was a terrible time in the nation's history. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. It was a dark and a dim time. But in the midst of this dark and dim time, God was raising up a deliverer. They had no idea. They had no idea what was going on. But what did God do? He raised up a righteous king, King David, to rescue his people, Israel. And that was a wonderful time in the nation's history. They, they were strong. And, and David led. David, like all of us, was a human who made a lot of mistakes along the way. But ultimately, he was a man who loved God with all his heart. And God was raising up King David to rescue the people of Israel. What a beautiful and amazing scene. But remember, Ruth Boaz, Naomi, they had no idea what God was doing. They had no idea what God was doing. He was raising up the line of David to rescue not just a family, but to rescue a nation. It gets better. Let's pick up in verse 18. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron. Fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse and Jesse fathered David. We get David again. It's pretty important. Now, when the Bible gives genealogies, it doesn't always give a genealogy of every single generation. Oftentimes, there's there sorts of summaries. And, and the term fathered can mean was the literal father or it can mean was an ancestor of what is important to note here is that we get the names of ten people ten people have we seen the number ten in this book before we have haven't we that's the number of years that Ruth was barren ten years and so what we see is that the Lord more than made up for her ten years of barrenness we see ten generations of her family look at God's work Naomi left empty handed and now she's full And again, Naomi has no idea, but God's working out something great, not just to redeem her family, not just to redeem the nation of Israel, but God's working out something great to redeem all of us who are sitting here today and all who will turn to him in faith. Turn over to Matthew chapter 1 and look in verse 5 and 6. Here you'll be looking at the genealogy of the Lord Jesus. And we'll pick up in verse 5. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Does this genealogy sound familiar? Do you see what God was doing He was rescuing Naomi's family, Elimelech's family line. He was working to rescue the nation of Israel by rising up a righteous king. But not just that. He was working to raise up one who would redeem all who would turn to him in faith. Now they had no idea all that God was doing, all that God was working to accomplish. So God sovereignly saves his people. As we've looked at this chapter, we see that God works through the setbacks and the disappointments of life, through the setbacks and the disappointments of life to accomplish his good and eternal purposes. So what does this look like in our lives? Well, first, don't be surprised by setbacks, twists, and turns in life. They're going to happen, brothers and sisters. Life in a fallen world, life after Genesis 3, means a lot of brokenness, means a lot of pain. God never said it would be different, and all throughout Scripture, like this story, we're told, life's going to be rough, this side of heaven. It's going to be tough. God's at work in our pain and in our fumbles, and He's at work in our broken dreams. He's at work. We see the Apostle Paul saying the very thing in Romans 8:28, and we know that God is working in all things for the good of those who love Him and who are called according to His purposes. God's at work. So the Christian life, brothers and sisters, is not like a straight-as-an-arrow section on the autobahn where you can just No, it's more like a bumpy, winding country road with, with gullies, with holes, with challenges and difficulties. Jesus himself said, in this world you will have many troubles. Take heart. I've overcome. So recognize there's going to be setbacks. There's going to be heartaches. There's going to be broken dreams. Second, never, ever give up on God. Keep trusting him. Never give up on him. Keep trusting him. He's the sovereign ruler of the universe. He's at work. If you belong to him, he hasn't taken his eye off of you. He cares for you. He loves you. And he's at work even when you can't see. Please remember that so much of the book of Ruth shows us God's work behind the scenes without, those, without the main actors even being aware of what he was doing. And none of them had any idea that he was raising up the Savior, the Lord Jesus, or, or even King David for that matter. But God was at work. I can remember being a boy, and I grew up in the country. I loved to go out in the pastures and out into the woods to play. I would go and fish and, and just everything you can think of out in the woods. And what I hated more than anything as a boy just about was winter. I couldn't stand winter because winter most of the time. Now, I grew up in north Texas, so that's where it was really cold. Some of you Yankees who grew up north of Texas, um, you know what real winters are. But, but uh, for me... Where I was at, it was pretty cold for a few months of the year, and we didn't get to get out a lot, and it would be uh, nasty outside. And so I would long for winter to end where I could go out and do what I wanted to do. One of the things that I was told as a kid is when you see a robin, you know the bird, the robin bird for the first time, you can know that spring is just around the corner. So I would always wait and hope as a boy. I want to see a robin. I want to see a robin. Eventually I'd see a robin. And before long, winter would be over. Never give up on God. The winter may be long, but you keep trusting him. Spring's coming. He's there for you. Third, remember that a life of deep devotion to God has untold eternal consequence. A life of deep devotion to God has untold eternal consequence. Again, Naomi, Ruth, Boaz were walking in righteousness. They were walking in integrity. They wanted to please and honor God. It's clear by the way that they lived. They had no idea how God was using their righteousness to accomplish his eternal purposes. No idea at all. And so we want to keep on walking with him in deep devotion, even in the dark days, even in the times when we struggle with him and we wonder what he's doing. We want to keep trying to, to live for him. And so I ask you today, do you have a deep devotion to God? A devotion where you're loving him more and you're striving to, to, to get to know him more? Where you're pouring your life into the things of God? One of the great temptations of the world today is to play. It's to play. I'm going to play with this and I'm going to play with that. And I'm not talking about kids. I'm talking about those of us who are adults. We start playing over here and playing over there and playing with this and playing with that. And we're so busy entertaining ourselves that we're giving up opportunities to have great impact on eternity. Oh, brothers and sisters, let's pour our lives into a deep devotion to God that he might use us. It's something like this. What happens upstream in a river always affects downstream. We know that. Whatever happens up here, well, it has an impact here. And it's as if this, when we live a life of deep devotion to God and we strive to pour our lives into loving him and his eternal purposes, it's like we have no idea how what we do here is going to impact in the days ahead and in the generations to come eternity. We have no idea how God will use our deep devotion to him for the good of others in the future and for those who are those who are alive long after we're dead. Brothers and sisters, let's be deeply devoted to God. Fourth, have hope because the future is glorious. Have hope because the future is glorious. Naomi found her deepest desire met that her family line would continue. Well, We may not have our deepest desire always fulfilled here on earth, But I want you to know that if you belong to Christ, the day is coming where everything you've ever dreamed of pales in comparison to the wonder and glory that you have in heaven. You see, the joys of this life will pale in comparison to the joys of eternal life. So so we can have hope as we look to heaven. It's something like this. Suppose you're going on a long, long trip, but when you get there, You're going to get to do something you've really wanted to do. Maybe it's go see a family member you haven't seen in a long time. Or maybe it's to go to some special event that that you're interested in. Or or maybe it's to go and sightsee. Something that, that you haven't gotten to see before. And so you take this long trip. But along the way, when you're like, oh, this is taking forever. You keep thinking, oh, but I'm going to get to see family I haven't gotten to see in a long time. Or I'm going to get to do this. I've been dreaming of doing this my whole life. Or I'm going to get to see this place that I've always wanted to see. And so... The trip's not so bad because you can look to what's ahead. And you see today, maybe there are a lot of things in your life that that are hard. But brothers and sisters, the trip won't be so bad if you'll keep looking to what's ahead. You see this life, a good life, 80, 90 years, it is but a drop in the bucket of eternity. So even if we endure some tough days now, if we're in Christ, there are wonderful days ahead. So remember that. It'll make the trip easier. Make the trip easier. The future's glorious fifth. Be passionate about reaching the peoples of the world. All throughout the story of of Ruth and Naomi, we see that God has a passion and a love for, 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 for the world, for the peoples of the world. And God's love for the peoples of the world ought to eliminate racial and ethnic prejudices among the people of God. We shouldn't be those people. Those people may be out there, but those of us who are redeemed by the blood of Jesus, we ought to love all people. And we ought to be passionate about getting the gospel to all people, our neighbor across the street, as well as the the man in Nepal who's never heard. We need to be passionate about getting the gospel to all people because God is passionate about the peoples of the world. We see that he includes Ruth the Moabite in the bloodline of our Savior. And we think of some of the last words that Jesus uttered to his disciples go into all the nations preaching the gospel making disciples so we ought to share that passion and that burden. Now for just a moment, I want you to think back to that night when Naomi was holding that tiny baby boy, her Redeemer. And I want you to realize that a thousand years later, another baby boy was born who would come from from the same family line and this little baby boy Well, he would be the redeemer of all people who would believe. He would come as the true rescuer. You see, God the Father loved us so much that he sent his own son to come to this earth as a tiny baby. Jesus grew up suffering and enduring the kind of hardship and difficulty that all of us do. Ultimately, he was nailed to the cross. Why? He was nailed to the cross because of our sin. You see, God is like pure, crystal clean water. And he can't accept our, our filth, our sin. So what he did is, as a righteous judge, he says sin has to be judged. And it has to, there has to be a penalty paid because I can't accept it in my righteousness. And so what he does is he offers the sacrifice. He gives up his very own son and Jesus faces the penalty that you deserve and that I deserve. He, he takes our penalty upon himself. That's why he was nailed to the cross. And then he was buried and he came back to life. And now any of us, can have hope when we turn from our sin, we believe in Jesus and we follow him. When we do that, God saves us and rescues us, and we can become a part of the family line of Jesus. We can become a part of his family. Now, do you remember the Wizard of Oz near the ending? Here this Wizard of Oz has seemed so great and mighty and powerful. And then in the end, the curtains pulled back He's just an old man without all the power and the boasting that he had done. Well, he was really not much of anything compared to being this great wizard that he has imagined. Is that what we discover in Ruth 4 about God? That he's really not king? That he's really not at all what we had hoped or dreamed or imagined, that he's not good? And the answer from Ruth 4 is unequivocally no, he is king. He is the king. In fact, he's working behind the scenes to rescue all people in this very story. And not just that, he is good. He's good, he cares, he loves his own. So Ruth doesn't answer all our questions, but it reminds us that we have a God who's king and a God who loves his people, and who's good. So trust him, trust him. You, you can't see his hand at this point in your life, Keep holding on. If you belong to him, he's never, ever going to let you down. He's going to walk with you through the hardships, and he's going to restore and renew. Some of you are here today, and you're not Christians. There's never been a point in your life where you've said to Jesus, I know that I've gone my own way. Please forgive me. I want to follow you. That There's never been that turning point in your life. And if, if that's the case I want to say to you, maybe some of the things that you've experienced in your life up to this point, some of the things that have been very painful in your life, could it be that God even wants to use those, that pain, that you might travel a path to Him, that you might turn from your sin and discover His love? Maybe it's that pain that's helped you to realize this life doesn't, it can only go so far that there's something more. So could it be that the pain that he's allowed in your life is so you could discover his love, so that you could be saved? Today, I don't know where you're at, but if you do not know the Lord Jesus personally, there's nothing more important that could happen in your life. In just a moment, I'll be standing here at the front. Ralph will be here as well, and we would love to tell you more about how to know Jesus. Just get up from your seats, come right down here. We'll talk with you, pray with you. Others of you may want to just come and pray at the altar that God would would help somebody that you know who's struggling or maybe your own heart. Whatever it is that the Lord's calling you to do, I want to urge you and encourage you to respond in obedience. Let's stand.